Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming live from my podcast office, and I am super excited to have John Wyman on our show today. And he is going to be talking about his addiction to alcohol. And we have talked many different times on our podcast about how alcohol is a poison um, and it can kill you and it can disrupt your life and many others around you. So he's got a very, very powerful story about how that happened and almost killed him more than once. Um, so he's going to go into a lot of details about what he went through and um, how he overcame that. So I am super excited to welcome John to our show. John, welcome to our show. Sean, how are you? I am doing wonderful. So John, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. Um, my name is John Wyman. Uh, my practice is LifeBridge Coaching. I'm a marriage counselor. Um, I have created a model where I uh, I don't limit it to time. Um, I want the couple to walk out or in the Zoom call better than they came in. And I really don't care. Typically, it goes about three hours. But I got into this field um, years ago. Um, I worked with one of the best in the world, a guy by the name of Dr. James Masterson. Um, and as I looked at my um, relationship with alcohol, it started at a very young age. Um, I remember in seventh grade when my parents would go away we would go into the liquor cabinet and literally mix all the bottles and then put a little soda in it and drink it. Um, obviously very unhealthy. I initially drank um, to fit in. Um, and that continued on as I went through high school. I remember starting to go to bars at 15 years old. Um, I drank to have fun or so I thought, but um, looking back, I, I'd say I was pretty lonely. Um, my parents went through a very difficult divorce. Um, and I, um, I just drank to, to hide a little, a lot of reality. Um, I, I got married. I hid my alcohol drinking during my marriage. I like to say that uh, married for 14 years, I lied every single day of my marriage. I, uh, I always said what she wanted to hear instead of what my real truth was. And uh, the reason I did that, uh, as I look back, um, I was very affected by my parents' divorce. And I wanted to prove to myself that I was a better husband in person than my father. Um, so after 14 years, um, we divorced. In my divorce, I literally gave up everything I had. I didn't want my children to suffer. Um, during that time, my mom, who is my hero, and also right behind me, uh, one of the original Nike posters, uh, she got cancer. She got lymphoma. Um, she had a three-year battle, and she died. And the close friend I ever had got killed in a car crash. Um, I went on a road where I slept too much, ate too much, and drank too much, um, and uh, basically drank to uh, 
to escape reality. Um, the reality was I was all alone. Um, for example, my high school graduation, no one went to. No one in my family went to. Um, I uh, realized my college graduation, I didn't go to. I felt very alone in my life. And, and where do you find people? You find them in a bar. Um, so uh, through divorce, my mom's death, my friend's death, um, I was all alone. And where do you find people? You will always find them in a bar. Um, well, the drinking, I remember as I was drinking too much, um, I, I noticed my eyes were turning yellow and I put Visine in my eyes. There I was, you know, getting jaundiced and I was hiding it. Um, I did feel all alone. Um, I remember my apartment was a disaster. Clothes were all over the floor, the TVs were on. And every once in a while I would clean the apartment and it was the worst feeling in the world. And the reason is, is because those clothes on the floor, they were friends. And I, I, I mean that in the symbolic sense, I didn't feel so alone. Um, so uh, again, I drank, I remember every time I put my hand on the uh, door to uh, the bar, I remember thinking, I hope I meet the person that takes me out of here tonight. And uh, I didn't even like drinking. Um, I didn't like it. I, I drank beer. Um, and for the record, um, when I do talks about this, people ask me how much I drank. And people don't like my answer. And the reason they ask the question is typically they want to know if they have to worry themselves. And my answer is, however much I drank, my body said it was too much. My body gave me signs um, that I was drinking too much. Uh, so um, one day I had stomach pain and uh, I decided I better go to the hospital and, and see what's going on. I had it for a couple of days. It took me 45 minutes to walk about 100 feet or so to my car. Um, they did all sorts of blood tests on me. Um, they kept testing the blood. It was really interesting. When they first came in, they were very friendly. Um, and each time they took blood tests, they became a little more serious. It was four hours. Um, they probably took, I don't know, tests four or five times easy. And when they finally, the doctor came in and said to me, I'll never forget it. Okay, John, here's the deal. You're in complete liver failure. You keep doing what you're doing. You'll be dead in two months. And that was a reality um, that I had to face. And I faced it immediately. And I said to him immediately, okay, I'll stop. And I stopped immediately. Um, I walked out of the hospital without insurance and thought, what do I do? And again, as I said, my mom was my hero and I was really proud of her battle with cancer. And I thought, well, if I can be half as strong as her, I'll be okay. 
Um, and that was my plan. Um, I um, went on a road where, uh, again, I immediately stopped drinking. Um, and I had to face that. Uh, now, the medical consequences started to show themselves. Um, there's something called the ascites. Ascites, basically, the cirrhosis is scar tissue of your liver. Everyone says, oh, your liver regenerates. Well, yes, that's true. But when your liver is cirrhotic, it doesn't. So as blood goes through the liver to try to detoxify, it can't do it. And so um, what happens is the cells squeeze out the fluid and the fluid goes all over your body. And again, this is ascites. Um, it has to be drained. I was having 20 liters drained every two weeks, 50 pounds of fluid that would build up every two weeks. Um, that was a medical consequence that um, it also takes away a lot of your protein. Um, I always, though, promised myself I would, when it was called getting tapped. Well, when I got tapped, I would literally park in the farthest spot in the parking lot away. And I always made a promise to myself to walk to my car. Um, and to this day, I'm proud of that. I walked every single time. And it was tough to walk because you're drained of a lot of protein. Um, so ascites started to happen. Um, that, that really was, again, that was pretty painful. Um, I think uh, Sean could probably answer, but as I understand, uh, people with ascites, 50% of them um, die. People who have ascites, uh, they they don't make it. Um, it's not a good diagnosis, no, not at all. Yeah, well, ascites was actually one of the easier things. Um, hepatic encephalopathy, what happens is, um, and Sean, maybe I'll explain it better than I do, but when the blood goes through the liver and it can't detoxify, the toxins go to the brain. Yeah. And you basically hallucinate. Um, one of the times, it's called hepatic encephalopathy. Um, I had it driving and didn't know I was encephalopathic. I do remember all sorts of cars were honking. Trucks were honking. How I did not get killed, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, luckily I had a friend of mine call me and noticed something was wrong. Thank God I was right by an exit where there's a pharmacy and there's a medicine called lactulose, um, which is not fun to take. No. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, it's a laxative, um, and the laxative, you have to take it. Um, I had to take it three times a day. Now, I've never, I've literally never told anyone this. The reason I didn't take it this day was because a dear friend of mine, dear friend of mine, went into labor and I drove her, um, her mother uh, and 
and daughter and, and now Christina to the hospital. So I went without taking lactulose for 30 hours. And then after Christina was born, drove to West Virginia. And I became encephalopathic driving. Um, lactulose is not a fun, fun medicine, but um, luckily I got better. Um, the battles continued. I um, had a stroke and my stroke, I was on life support for five days and uh, they never knew whether I was gonna live or die. Um, it's tied down, had the tube down my throat. Um, it, was, it was pretty tough. I was in rehab um, for a while, um, and it was kind of funny. I like to add humor to it. When I finally uh, became conscious, uh, my wife called the doctor immediately. She was actually, it was a beautiful thing. After five days, never knowing whether I was going to wake up or not, I woke up and she was holding my hand. And that was that was something I'll never forget. And she called the doctor and the doctor comes in the room right away. And they're like, is he okay? Is he okay? And I turn and look at Sherry and out of the corner of my eye, I see my mother-in-law <laughs> who was by her, Sherry's side. And I make a face like, ew. <laughs> and they're like, he's fine. He's fine. He's back. That's John. Um, so, <laughs> uh, um, the uh, the stroke was uh, a tough, tough thing, and um, I guess to back up a little bit during that time, um, you know, when you have cirrhosis, obviously you need a liver transplant. Well, that world, the reality of that is very, very eye opening. I'll say. Um, Johns Hopkins here in Baltimore wouldn't talk to me. And the reason they wouldn't talk to me is they were on probation for failed transplants. I went to Penn in Philadelphia after waiting two years. During that two years, I was probably tested 200 times. You know, they would say, John, go get a urine test. Go, and I'd go. Um, I finally got my audience with the, the staff at Penn. Um, Twelve doctors were in a room. And Dr. Shaked, um, just chief of transplant surgery, he asked me one question. John, you messed up your liver. Why should we give you one? And I I had to answer that question. Yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> very big question. Yeah, it is. And Again, the reality of this is the patient has to accept the fact that this is about money. And what I mean by that is failed transplants cost hospitals money. And they're not going to list someone if they think you're not going to make it. Right. They're not going to list anyone who doesn't do the work. They have to be sure. And so when he asked me this question, I 
spoken passion I never knew I had. And I guaranteed him I was going to make it to that table. And Dr. Shaked, after I make it there, it's your turn. And through that time of waiting, I will, you know, remind you that 4,000 pounds of fluid was drained from my body. Two strokes. One, I was on life support. Seizures where I flatlined twice. That wasn't fun either. <laughs> At least a dozen surgeries. I had something called TIPS, trans, uh, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic stent put in my liver. Um, again, not fun. Uh, and I waited 12 years for my transplant and endured all of that. Again, I saw 14 people die having what I had. Um, but I, I guaranteed him and I will never forget in May of 2020, I, I had a little, uh, I, I had a hernia actually. Uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> a hernia was five years earlier. Um, I had a hernia and they, uh, I went to Penn and they're like, so, you know, what are we going to do? Because. I was told if they did the operation, remove the hernia, there was a 30% chance I would die in a month. 100% chance I would die if the hernia burst. So seven doctors came and talked to me, the first year resident and went up the ladder and it finally went to Dr. Shaked. <laughs> and he asked me my uh, red blood cell count. Um, and they told him it was in the 180s, I think. And he said, here's the deal, John. We'll do the surgery, see what happens. And uh, you'll probably be here a month. And I said, okay, all right, we'll do it. Let's do it. And um, anyway, I had just so, so much respect for him. And uh, he told me to come back in a week. We did the surgery. Uh, the surgery started at 7 a.m. I walked out of the hospital at noon. When I woke up, he said, John, you're fine. You can, you can be discharged. Um, he did a phenomenal job. Um, but as we fast forward to May of 2020, um, uh, Sean, you know the, the MELD score, I'm sure, right? I'm actually not familiar, no. Okay, the MELD score is the number that determines where you are on the transplant list. You don't get your transplant because you're sick. You have to come within days of dying. And that's just the reality of it. The number goes from six to 40. It's a combination of sodium, uh, albumin, uh, there's a couple other numbers. Um, it's four numbers that put together a little formula. Uh, and it goes again between six to 40. Um, when I was listed, I was like a 22. Um, and the, the, uh, the interesting thing about it is, is that in every state, the number where you get a transplant is 
pretty different. For example, New York, Philadelphia, it's in the 30s. <laughs> it's pretty high. Um, I remember that, uh, who was it? Um, Steve Jobs went to Tennessee because it was a 15. So you're not that sick. Um, well, the benefits of getting it when you're not that sick are you're not that sick. Yeah, you can recover better. Yeah, the problem is the doctors don't do many of them. So they don't have the experience that someone in Philadelphia, New right. York, LA has. So um, it's, it's a tightrope. Um, so I was a 22. I actually, during my 12 years of waiting for a transplant, um, went down to a seven through eating properly, exercise, just good living. Um, they took me off the transplant list because I was too healthy. Um, and they put me in a status called pen waiting. Um, and the reason they do is I understand if I'm in a car accident and I'm listed, that's a failed transplant. I get killed. So they don't, if you're healthy, they, you're good. You know, you're good. And I, um, I was a seven. Well, in the month of May, um, I had something with my gallbladder. And they did this procedure, and I went from a seven to a 15. And so my gastro doctor said, well, John, I, I guess we'll take out your gallbladder. And the surgeon, his first question was, what's his melt? And he, they said, it's a 15. He goes, I'm not touching him. There's no way I'm touching him. <laughs> so they said, okay, all right. He said, let's do the procedure again, all right? Well, it went to a 22. And they're like, uh-oh, now what? I was fine, though, Sean. I was, like, I was talking like I'm talking to you right now. Yeah. And um, they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We'll do it again, and we're going to bring a specialist in to do this. So you got nothing to worry about. I said, okay, great. Let's do this, um, which became my mantra. So I, uh, they did it again, and I woke up, and it was a 28. And they said, John, there's an ambulance outside. You're going to Penn to get a transplant. Um, I'll never forget the years of driving to Penn, 12 years of driving there, yeah. Three, four times a year. When I was about 20 miles away, I would start shaking. And the reason I started shaking was this is the place I was going to go to die one day. And it was, it was a tough ride. Um, although when I parked my car and I walked in that hospital, I owned it. I gave hope to everyone I met. And one of the moments I'll never forget, I was in the transplant waiting room. Penn was building an addition and me and this other person was in there. And I looked out the window and I said, you wanna know what's really cool about that building? She said, what? And I said, when that building's up, by the time that's up, we'll have our transplants. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you're right, we will. And 
Then she said, you know, what do you want to be remembered for, John? And I was like, whoa, what do you know that I don't know? <laughs> and uh, I thought about it and I, I said, you know, I want to be remembered for loving and accepting everyone for exactly who they are and maybe making them laugh a little bit. And I thought that was a great answer. And then she floored me <laughs> and said, are you living that way? And I was like, wow, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know. And um, she said, why don't you try? And that would change my life. And um, I did. But um, as we fast forward to May of 2020, um, you know, I was on my way to Penn. And again, we were, we were laughing and joking with the nurses in the, car, in the ambulance. It was fine. Yeah. Um, Dr. Altoff comes in when I'm admitted. Uh, she is second in command. And she said, John, we found a donor. We are 100% confident. And I said, so am I. I'm 100% confident in this. Let's do this. Um, now, here comes a reality. Someone has to die for you to live. Right. And there, she said, you know, we're just waiting for the family to say goodbye. That's tough. That's really tough. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know how to handle that. Um, waiting. I, uh, I'll never forget. I got a call. I used to coach little kids football. Um, this kid, Mark, um, he was seven years old when I started coaching him. He was 32 at the time. And he called me. It, it was like 10 o'clock at night. And he's crying. And I'm like, Mark, what's wrong, man? And he goes, Coach John, I just don't want you to die. And I said, Mark, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay? There's no way I'm dying from this. Um, so the next day, uh, again, that 100% thing came on board when uh, I was outside the operating room on the stretcher and Dr. Shaked comes walking by. I saw Dr. Shaked in 12 years, I would say less than an hour. I yeah. mean, less than an hour. And um, I said, hey, he goes, John, you ready? And I said, yeah, Dr. Shaked, you remember what I said? And he goes, yeah, I do, John. It's my turn now. And I was like, oh, God, this is, this is going to be easy. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And um, the surgery going into the operating room, um, the team was incredible. They were so good. Um, and it, it's kind of like it's kind of like a concert in a way. They said, John, you want to hear anything? You want to hear anything? I'm like, sure. Uh, let's hear Bruce Springsteen, Thunder Road. And we're all singing Thunder Road. And I'm like, this is great. This is before the, the big stars, the surgeons come in. Yeah, yeah. And then they said, uh, all right, Thunder Road was over. And they said, what next? And I said, born to run. I broke down and started crying. Born to run 
was really the beginning of my drinking problem. The first verse mentioned the town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. That was my senior quote in high school. Wow. And no one realized it. No one saw that cry for help. So, John, we're pushing a half hour now. Um, so mm-hmm. I kind of want to w- wind up the podcast. Sure. Um, so I'm going to have you sum up your transplant went okay. Yeah. Um, and then what I would like you to ask is or tell is, um, you know, how this makes you talk to other people about alcohol. So um, how is that? change how you talk to people about alcohol do you tell people to abstain from alcohol not drink at all or, or how has that changed your um, relationship with other people when it comes to al- talking about alcohol in my practice i deal with alcohol as an issue a lot i've yeah. come to learn i tell them my story and everyone i tell i say you don't want to go through what i did you don't want to do that i mean you have no i mean sean last friday I'm still paying for the medical consequences. I had a seizure. I can barely lift my shoulder because it's almost broken. The medical consequences are not worth it. You will lose everything. And you will say, it's not going to happen to me. Yes, it will. I, I encourage people. I've come to learn, though. They will stop when they want to. Yeah, right. Um, And, uh the the life without it um it's interesting i i wrote a book during the time um and i'll i'll do a little yeah, what's the name of the book a jersey kind of love all right <laughs> and half this book i wrote drunk out of my mind and the other half i wrote sober as a judge and the interesting thing about it is i challenge you to find the part where where i switched Um, but the, it was really, it's a book of three kids. You can't help, but like their relationships and their views on their parents' relationships. And it was basically of being alone. It was my thing to do to, to fight and combat the loneliness. So, um, again, I encourage people to alcohol does not give you a warning. I will tell you. Six months before I was given two months to live, I got a blood test taken. And I was like, I'm sure it's going to show. I'm sure it is. And the doctor said nothing. Yeah. Um, so it, it doesn't give you notice. It When your liver says that's it, it's it. Um, so I would say don't drink. Don't. It's not worth it. So if people want to get a hold of you, John, I've got your LinkedIn here. Is there a better way than LinkedIn to get a hold of you? Um, you can, uh, LinkedIn's great. You can also, um, my website, lifebridgecoaching.com, um, phone numbers, 410-419-8149. I answer it all the time. Um, and my model again, in terms of, uh, my practice, I don't do the hour thing, (laughs) so it works. Um, but I, I really appreciate um, this time. Uh, I hope it helps someone. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story. It's a very powerful story. And we talk on this podcast all the time, how alcohol is a poison. 
Um, and I mean, you, you use a uh, perfect example. I mean, it killed your liver and many other things, um, in your body. So, um, I'm glad you're here to share this story and hopefully it can help inspire others. So you've definitely helped realize our goal at health solutions, which is to educate and empower people to take charge of their own health. And they have to make that decision. Yeah. Yes, they do. They do. And it's a good decision. So thank you. Thank you, John, for being on today. Thank you, listeners and viewers, for tuning in. Tune in Monday morning. You do not want to miss out. Monday morning at 8 a.m., we have a special edition of our podcast. Dr. Peter McCullough is going to be on our podcast. So 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Monday morning. Please tune in and stay tuned for more links. So thank you for watching Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. Thank you.